I'm Reverend Bob Moore, Executive Director of the Coalition for Peace Action, and welcome to this episode of Peace Matters. Today, we're very lucky to have two world-class experts on nuclear weapons and on the climate crisis that we're facing. And they are Dr. Zia Mian, who is co-director of the Program on Science and Global Security at Princeton University. His research has especially focused on Pakistan and India, uh, but he also uh, is the co, uh, excuse me, the co-chair of the International Panel on Fissile Materials, and he is the co-author of a book called Unmaking the Bomb. So, Dr. Meehan, welcome. We're glad to have you with us today. And then our other special guest is Professor Alan Robach. He is Distinguished Professor of Environmental Sciences at Rutgers University and has done a number of studies about the impact on the climate of the use of nuclear weapons in various scenarios. So we're very uh, fortunate to have each of you with us today. I'm happy to be here. Thanks for inviting me. Pleasure to be with you today, Bob. Thank you. Uh, Dr. Meehan, let's start with you. Uh, I know that after the end of the Cold War, a lot of people in the public thought that the issue of nuclear weapons pretty much receded and we got pretty much a lot safer from the danger of the use of nuclear weapons and a possible nuclear holocaust. But it seems like, especially since 2010, when the last nuclear reduction treaty uh, was negotiated, that things have really been getting worse, possibly, instead of better. Could you comment on what you see as the current state of the issue of nuclear weapons in the world? Um, thank you, Bob. Beginning with the end of the Cold War is a, is a good way to start any conversation about where nuclear dangers are today. Because one of the things that's important to remember is that after a huge effort by peace activists and peace movements all over the world in the early 1980s, the President Reagan of the United States and Secretary General of the Soviet Union, Mikhail Gorbachev, met in Reykjavik and agreed on the principal goal of the abolition of nuclear weapons. Right. That this was something that was necessary and achievable. And they also declared that a nuclear war uh, could not be won and must never be fought. And those two things together meant that as the last few years of the Cold War, uh, let me try that again, that in the last few years of the Cold War, what we saw was a series of initiatives and treaties by the United States, the Soviet Union, and then Russia to draw down nuclear forces, to reduce tensions, and even to begin to cut the number of conventional forces that they had. And people around the world were reasonably expecting that once you have presidents say that, yes, we want to abolish nuclear weapons, that we can't ever fight and win a nuclear war, that we're trying to find ways of ending the nuclear danger, that they could turn their attention to other things. And so people around the world started to think about climate change and social justice issues and mm -hmm. many other pressing problems that we had in the expectation that when the highest leaders of the international system have agreed on what peace movements had been asking for for such a long time, that that problem had basically been solved. Right, right. And what we've seen is that we took for granted that the pro-nuclear weapons forces in many, many countries that have these weapons were 
damaged but had not accepted defeat. Mm -hmm. And they have rallied and found political support and have managed to push back. And so what we saw, for example, was that in the early years of the Bush administration, um, in the early 2000s, um, at the same time as we saw the wars of 9-11, we also saw a major effort in the United States to revitalize the role of nuclear weapons right. in US nuclear policy, to build a new generation of nuclear right. weapons mm -hmm. and find new missions for nuclear weapons. But thankfully, the US Congress and public opinion and voters were able to push that back. Mm -hmm. And so we saw that when President Obama came into office, that again, we picked up the goal of the elimination of nuclear weapons right. and tried to make progress. Um, but now with the Trump administration, we see the right-wing forces in support of nuclear weapons and the military strength as the measure of all things back in the White House. And so they again are pushing for a new generation of nuclear weapons right. to rebuild the nuclear weapons complex and to push forward nuclear weapons into the 21st century. And at the same time, the Russians and the Chinese have seen that if this is the way the United States is gonna go, then they are not going to be left behind. So they also have mobilized. And so looking around the world, what we see now is that all of the nine countries with nuclear weapons, out of the 193 countries in the world, the nine that have nuclear weapons are all investing enormous amounts of money now in rebuilding, manufacturing, and developing right. their nuclear weapons. And they're all committed to keeping their nuclear weapons for the foreseeable future. And so we face a whole new and quite unexpected challenge, given where we thought we were headed over the last 25 years. Yes, and I think for the US part of that uh, sort of escalation, I'm gonna call it re-escalation of nuclear weapons, but I think escalation is more accurate because uh, moder this modernization program of rebuilding all the arms of the, of the uh, triad, the nuclear triad, land-based, sea-based, and air-based, uh, that the cost of that is expected to be up to $2 trillion, which is an astronomical amount of money. And uh, it's going to really bring new capabilities into the ability to fight and try to win a nuclear war. More usable nuclear weapons are part of this package. And so that alarms me an awful lot. Bob, I think that it's important to remember that it's not just new hardware and new mm -hmm. nuclear weapon factories and new submarines and new missiles and new nuclear warheads that they're talking about. The Trump administration has actually gone on record saying that they want to expand the range of circumstances in which they would use nuclear weapons. Right. So they're thinking about using nuclear weapons even earlier in a conflict and for a larger set of reasons than any previous administration has suggested that it would be willing to do so. So they are investing in new kinds of nuclear weapons right. facilities, capabilities to expand the possible range of contingencies in which they would use nuclear weapons. Right. And other countries look at this and say, okay, if this is what the future looks like, what are we going to do about it? Mm -hmm. And at least in the other nuclear weapon states, I mean, Russia is also now talking about deploying a whole new set of kinds of nuclear right. weapons. Right. The Chinese are also thinking about new kinds of weapons capabilities, including hypersonic weapons. And Britain is investing in a whole new generation of weapons, as are the French and, and others. And so um, across the board, we are seeing this determined effort by nuclear weapon complexes, um, who at one stage you can see as they're all adversaries of each other. Mm -hmm. But on the other side, they all have this common interest in keeping their nuclear weapons mm -hmm. and having the large budgets and the 
feeling of hostility and danger to keep generating jobs and profits for the companies that make these weapons and the politicians that rely on fear as a way to take office and keep power. Right, and just to maybe help our listeners understand, and uh, Professor Robach, why don't we let you, I just was gonna make a comment, but I'll save it. I'd like to hear what you have to add. I'd like to put a little bit more optimistic note okay. to what, what uh, Dr. Mia just said. Part of the reason that the nuclear arms race ended in the 1980s was pressure from countries around the world that didn't have them. Mm -hmm. And they realized that they would suffer even if no bombs were dropped there. Mm -hmm. In the 1980s, Paul Crutzen published a paper saying that there would be smoke after a nuclear war because of the fires from the targets, from cities mm -hmm. and industrial areas. And people said, that might cause climate change. And so a team in the United States and a team in the Soviet Union started calculating how much climate change there would be. Mm -hmm. And they got the same answer. There would be so much smoke that temperatures would get below freezing, even in the summertime. Mm -hmm. And all crops around the world would die, and it would be basically famine for everybody. Mm -hmm. And they told Gorbachev, and they told Reagan this, and they accepted it because it was something from both sides, and it wasn't right. propaganda from one side or the other. Mm -hmm. They used very primitive climate models at the time, but they did the best that they could. And I think in your op-ed in the New York Times that you co-authored, you even said Reagan cited those scientists when yeah, he said yeah. that he wanted to get go yeah. down on the and number of nuclear weapons. And, yeah. so did, and so did Gorbachev. Mm -hmm. And so the numbers started going down. And yet, as Dr. Meehan said, we still have way too many and the world is worried about it. So there's a, a, a civil action by the International Campaign to Abolish Nuclear Weapons, right. ICANN. And they had meetings about the humanitarian impacts of nuclear war mm -hmm. around the world, one in Norway, one in Mexico, one in Austria. I, I went to a couple of those. And we mm -hmm. talked about our research on the climate effects. Mm -hmm. And of course, the direct effects are horrible. So they had survivors of Hiroshima there too. But these mm -hmm. indirect effects, more people would die from starvation than the direct effects of the right. blast. Right. And they, uh, they got really energized and they went to the United Nations two years ago in 2017 and got a treaty through to prohibit nuclear weapons. Mm -hmm. Over 100 countries voted for it. And now it's out for ratification. I think the number is 23 now countries that have ratified it. Unfortunately, the nine nuclear nations are trying to ignore it. But there's a lot of pressure from the rest of the world to get rid of their nuclear weapons because they know that everybody in the world would suffer, not just the people that were targeted. Yeah, Dr. Meehan, you were a scientific advisor to that uh, process at the United Nations of getting the nuclear ban treaty. That's right. I was involved in the process, um, both the working with uh, the NGOs like the International Campaign Against Nuclear Weapons and also with um, diplomats from the many countries that uh, Professor Robock mentioned. There were 122 countries there who voted in favor of the the right. treaty, who are trying to craft what kind of paths are possible for the prohibition of nuclear weapons, exactly what needed to be banned, how it could be banned, and how you might put in place a scheme to verify that nuclear weapon states that joined this treaty actually have given up their nuclear weapons. And so it has been an enormous achievement, and one should mm. keep in mind that the very first meeting of the United Nations that ever took place was in January 1946, straight mm -hmm. after the end of World War II. Right. And the first decision that the United Nations focused its energy on 
was not what to do with the millions of refugees from World mm. War II or how to con reconstruct the countries that have been devastated by bombing and war for so many years or to hold accountable the victims are the perpetrators of mm -hmm. these terrible attacks that took place. The first order of business of the United Nations was the call for a ban on nuclear weapons. Right. And it, we never got that ban right. until now, until this treaty for the prohibition of nuclear weapons in 2017 that Professor Robock mentioned. So it has been an enormous step forward in the struggle against nuclear weapons, establishing a new principle in international law and a new legal instrument that countries can use to try and have these conversations with nuclear weapon states and others to say, look, what you have now is seen by the rest of the world as a violation of international law and the norms of humanitarian law. So how are you going to stop this? Yes, uh, and I, I just want to add that on, on this topic of the nuclear ban treaty at the UN that we're going to be honoring Dr. Meehan for our listeners that are within driving distance of Princeton on Sunday, June 2nd at Princeton Seminary as part of our annual membership dinner. So go to peacecoalition.org. We'd love to see you there. And he really deserves this honor, as does everybody. We had the ambassador who chaired those spoke at our annual conference in 2017. And so this was a great privilege, Ambassador Gomez White. Oh, yeah. yeah, and it was really exciting. And it, it's especially important at a time like this when so much of the progress on nuclear reductions had been made since the first one in 1987, which was between Reagan and Gorbachev, uh, the INF treaty, the first nuclear reduction treaty, right on up till the last one in 2010 under President Obama. And so th that meant that the numbers of nuclear weapons had come down pretty dramatically from about 70,000 to 15,000. And now all of that is being reversed and President Trump seems to be just about every time you turn around, I'm withdrawing from this treaty, I'm withdrawing from that treaty, I don't like the Iran nuclear agreement, he's withdrawn from that first treaty negotiated by a Republican president. And so we really need these, you know, mileposts, these signs of hope that we can really organize around. So we really appreciate that. Professor So Robot? ICANN, the organization that pushed this through, uh, just happened to win the Nobel Peace Prize right. in 2017. Yes. The director was Beatrice Finn, she's Swedish. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And in her acceptance speech, she said, there will be one, and there will be one story about nuclear weapons. There will be something that will, ha it will be the end of nuclear weapons or it will be the end of us. Mm -hmm. One of these things will happen, it's up to us to do something about it. Mm -hmm. And so I was in Sweden uh, about a month ago okay. uh, at the in invitation of Pugwash and gave some talks about nuclear winter, the climatic effects. And Sweden actually signed the treaty, uh, voted for the treaty in the United Nations. Okay. And now civil society is pushing them to sign the treaty. To ratify it. it. Uh -huh. To ratify it, yeah. Mm -hmm. and they, they're hesitant because they're not part of NATO, but they have a, arrangements with NATO, mm -hmm. and they think if they sign it, they'll get NATO right. angry at them, and they won't be subject to the nuclear umbrella, that somehow they think that the nuclear weapons of NATO are gonna make them safer. Right. I don't think that makes a lot of sense, no, but there no. are people that, that, that think that, and so it's a struggle. Even the country of the woman who got the Nobel Peace Prize and with a recent yeah. history of being a very peaceful place, is having trouble ratifying it. Right. So, uh, Bob, if I can follow up that sure. very important observation by Professor Robok, one of the things that's happening is that the nine countries with nuclear weapons in the world look at this array of countries 
and people around the world opposed to their nuclear weapons and have been pushing back very hard mm -hmm. against this treaty and the countries that are trying to uh, sign and ratify this treaty and to use the treaty to bring pressure for the abolition of nuclear weapons globally. And so especially important, of course, is the United States as a country in the world which has so much political, economic mm. power and its allies, and especially Britain and France, in Europe in pushing back against countries who want to sign and support the treaty. And so one of the things that is going to be very, very important if we're going to make progress towards getting more and more countries to sign the treaty and to get the nuclear weapon states to sign this treaty is that the people who live in the countries with nuclear weapons, mm -hmm. most importantly the United States, mm -hmm. embrace the goals of this treaty mm -hmm. and begin a process of talking to each other and to their fellow citizens and to their legislators and policymakers and say, look, we actually think that this treaty and the goal and the purpose of the abolition of nuclear weapons which so many American presidents have supported in the past, right. that this is something that is important to us and we want our government and our legislatures to take action. So there are um, pieces of legislation that have been introduced in Congress in, in Washington, D.C. to support the goal and purpose of the Treaty on the Prohibition of Nuclear Weapons. There have also been actions taken at state level. So the state of California passed right. a resolution in its state assembly in support of this treaty on the prohibition of nuclear weapons. And there is a similar resolution pending in the state assembly in New Jersey. But these are also actions that towns can take place, mm -hmm. municipalities can take to say that we as ordinary people feel that we would be better off and the world would be better off if the United States supported the goal and acted towards the goal of the treaty for the prohibition of nuclear weapons and actually made that as a part of its foreign policy and its relationship with other countries, rather than trying to prevent progress towards the elimination of nuclear weapons. Right. I was actually one of the leaders of the nuclear weapons freeze campaign in the 1980s, and that was certainly an important part of our building grassroots support, was to get municipalities, counties, and states to pass resolutions and to use what we called grassroots democracy to generate pressure on the levels of government that are higher up because this is the level of government that's closest to us. You're, you know, the town, your members of your town council often you can just call them up or run into them in the store or whatever. So they're much more accessible. The problem is it was much scarier in the 1980s, yes. the threat of nuclear war. Yes. We had this enemy, the Soviet Union, and now mm -hmm. people don't really feel afraid by it. Yes. And, and we're using Russian rockets to take our astronauts up to the space station and so it's, it, it's, people are concerned, but it's way down on their list of other things yes. that they're concerned about. And so how, without completely freaking them out, do we get people to raise this to a level that they'll really do something about it rather than spend their time doing something else? It's a big challenge indeed. Yes, we've got a lot to do to help people realize how very dangerous the situation is now. I would say maybe even more dangerous than it was in the 1980s. So. Now there are nine countries, as Dr. Meehan said. The U.S. and Russia together have, I think, 93% of all the weapons. Right. They each have mm -hmm. over 6,000 weapons. All, all the other countries have two or 300 or, or fewer. Mm -hmm. And so why doesn't the U.S. How many, I mean, how many do you need to threaten somebody right. if they're going to attack you? How many weapons do you have to put on their capital city? And the answer is one, so maybe you need two. So 200 is more than enough. And, China, France, England could build as many as they want, but they've stopped. 
Mm-hmm. Now, two of the countries that have nuclear weapons now are Pakistan and India. Mm-hmm. And so, so 12 years ago, my colleague Brian Toon met me at a conference and said, somebody asked me what would happen if India and Pakistan had a war, right. a nuclear war. And right. I told them, not much. But then I calculated how much smoke there would be. Mm. And I said, that's a lot. And he said, who's gonna, I said, who's going to calculate the response of the climate system? He said, we thought maybe you would. <laughs> and so, so we did. My student, Luke Oman, was, was available. And we found it would be, it wouldn't be nuclear winter. The temperatures wouldn't get below freezing. But it would be cl- instant climate change, temperatures mm-hmm. colder than ever before experienced in, in history, mm-hmm. colder than the Little Ice Age. And we calculated there would be huge impacts on agriculture right. around the world. And so a, a little a war by two countries somewhere else on the other side of the world could really affect us. Right. And so we've been trying to tell people about that and worry not just about U.S. and Russia, but other countries too. And that's one reason I'm delighted to have both of you on this program today, because I think that the issue of the climate crisis and the nuclear crisis are interrelated with each other. And they really represent the two existential threats to the future of humanity. And we use the same tools, the same climate models that calculate what happens if you put more carbon dioxide in the atmosphere, mm-hmm. or what happens after a volcanic eruption, what would happen with all the smoke from the fires. Right. It would be, have a dramatic effect on the climate and, uh, as you said, cause really massive starvation in all likelihood, even a relatively small part of the arsenals that exist today. So one of, one, Dr. Meehan, go ahead. If I may, one of the things that we need to keep in mind, though, is that um, to try and get things that we can do in the short run is also mm-hmm. important. Mm-hmm. Because there will be so much resistance from right. the nuclear weapons establishments in all of these countries, that, these nine countries that have nuclear weapons. And the kind of the risk of accidental nuclear war and of things running out of control means that we have to try and put in place measures that can try and reduce the risk of nuclear mm-hmm. weapons as we push forward to reducing the number and getting rid of all of them. The treaty establishes the goal of prohibition. Right, it sets right, a new marker right. in the international community of law and what is good and proper for any self-respecting country to, to use as the basis of its policy, that you will not threaten or use nuclear weapons because they are indiscriminate weapons of mass destruction. Mm-hmm. And it's funny that the United States always uses this language about other people's nuclear weapons. Right but never about its own. But a weapon is a weapon is a weapon. And so one principle for thinking about nuclear weapons should be that all nuclear weapons are created equal. Mm. Whether they are North Korean weapons or Indian weapons or Pakistani weapons or Chinese weapons or American weapons, they are indiscriminate weapons of mass destruction. And they're huge. And they're huge. And Uh, no self-respecting country should be prepared to threaten or use them. I mean, if the United States tells Iran, we don't want you to have nuclear weapons. And they look at us and say, well, why do you have them then? Oh, right. we need them. We're special. Right. It's like you're sitting in a bar telling people not to drink. Why should they even listen to us? Right. It makes no sense. Right. There's a lot of hypocrisy. If we need them, then that. every country needs them. Yes. Which, we, which, which none of us do, by the way, but yes. it, makes, it makes no sense. Yes. And I think the, the other thing that we can keep uh, our mind on is, as Professor Robot mentioned earlier, and as you mentioned about the two existential threats that we face today of nuclear war and climate change, is that the emergence of a, of a global sensibility uh-huh. of, that climate change has helped bring to people's attention about how interconnected we all are mm. to 
each other and to what happens with choices about what fossil fuels are burnt where and what that means for the polar ice caps and for mm -hmm. rising sea levels mm -hmm. and for climate disruption everywhere um, is that we people, especially the next generation of people, is increasingly sensitive to the sense of being part of a global system. Right. And that we have to do right by all of it. Right. There is much more attention paid now to issues of poverty, of environmental destruction, of the rights of people all over the world. Mm -hmm. So the sense of what it means to be a good person in the world has changed a lot since the right. days of the Cold War because of the work of peace activists, environmental activists, women's rights activists, gay rights right. activists, right. they've all helped us become more sensitive to where we fit with each other in the world. And so this is something that the nuclear weapons uh, campaign to try and abolish nuclear weapons, it can become an increasing part of by embracing these other campaigns right. and having them embrace what we're trying to right. do to realize that we're all part of this one struggle to save the world from the mess that we have inherited and that we are still making of it today and that we have common cause with the people who are struggling against climate change for the rights of people and for the rights of nature and that this is all actually different facets of the same struggle to save ourselves from the kind of crises and catastrophes that we've somehow managed to create for ourselves, but we did this, and we are the only force that can undo this. Right. But we have to recognize that that is our challenge and begin the process of changing that consciousness into action. Yes, so the uh, idea that brings to mind is what's called intersectional organizing, and we've been doing more and more of that. A good example is we initiated a new campaign in conjunction with the People's Climate March in the fall of 2015. And we had a lot of our people who participated in that. We were very active in it. We said, well, you know, this is connected to the issue of nuclear danger and of war. And so we started a no wars, no warming campaign. And we can, we've continued that to this day. Another example is our gun violence prevention work because uh, we have such a horrible problem of gun violence here in the United States. It's really total, totally an outlier in terms of the rest of the world. Uh, 40,000 deaths a year we're having uh, now from gun violence and mass shootings all the time and so on. And so we've defined that as part of our halt to weapons trafficking priority. And so I think it is important to connect these issues and connect with these constituencies so that we increase, have a synergistic effect of increasing each other's strength. Good. Let me just follow that up. I think the work that the Coalition for Peace Action has done on gun violence is so important, and especially when you realize that on the other side, the advocates of nuclear weapons and the use of force and violence in the world also connect all of these weapons. It is no surprise to me that President Trump has withdrawn the United States from the Iran nuclear deal Mm. from the Intermediate Nuclear Forces Treaty, and now from the Arms Trade Treaty. Right. Because these people around President Trump and President Trump himself and others mm -hmm. feel that there should be no limit on the United States' capacity to exercise force and violence in the world. And anything that restrains that is to be opposed and to be undone. So the, the forces, so to speak, arrayed on the two sides of this struggle have become increasingly clear. On the other hand, he hasn't started a war yet. Yes, he but, certainly threatened it yeah, numerous but, times. Yeah, yeah. Especially he, against he North says Korea. A lot of, he threatens a lot of things and doesn't do them, so. Yeah, but I, close I, the border. <laughs> I know, it still makes me lose sleep. 
Yeah. You know, even rattling the saber, the nuclear saber like this, we could slide into a nuclear war very easily. There have been easily. many instances where we almost had a nuclear war because people thought that they were being attacked or right. didn't know there were weapons on a on an airplane. False alerts, or, yeah. Uh, mm -hmm. They put a training tape in when, and yeah. thought there was an attack. And so yeah. the only way to prevent that from happening is to get rid of the weapons. Yes. There's also the danger of hacking or, or some terrorist trying to get a hold of them. And if one weapon is used, it's going to be really hard to stop that and, and uh, not to attack with everything if you think somebody's attacking you. So one way to think about how to deal with that specific set of dangers mm -hmm. is that, um, as my Princeton colleague uh, Bruce Blair, the founder of the Global Zero Movement, has argued for, is that one of the things that we could do now is that the United States should move away from its policy of using nuclear weapons first mm -hmm. in a conflict. Mm -hmm. And that that sh decision to not be first, to turn any kind of conflict into a nuclear war, uh, is a policy decision that it is for the United States alone to take. But that could be the basis of going to the other nine nuclear weapon states and say, we should have a global treaty that mm -hmm. says that no country will be the first to mm -hmm. use nuclear weapons. How many of the nine countries have made that pledge already? So this is a, a very important uh, mm -hmm. question that Professor Robok poses. So China, for example, already has a policy right. that it will not be first. India has a policy that it will not be first. Mm -hmm. And so, and Russia and China have an agreement between themselves that they will not be the first in regard to their relationship to be the first in mm -hmm. case of any conflict to, to use nuclear weapons. Mm -hmm. And so it's... So there is actually a significant number of countries with nuclear weapons who've already decided that they won't be first right. to start a nuclear war. Right. And so what, what it comes down to is whether the United States and then uh, Britain and France and Russia, Israel and Pakistan, you know, can take similar kinds of steps. But you know, if the United States doesn't budge, it's hard to see the others beginning to budge on this question. But there is legislation in Congress yes, I was that has been introduced yes. to uh -huh. specifically say that the policy of the United States should be no first use of nuclear weapons. And that, that then could be the basis for a conversation among the nine nuclear weapon states to say we agree a global treaty not to be first. It doesn't make the weapons go away, which should be the key goal, but it does reduce the immediate threat of an accidental launch triggering an all-out nuclear war that you know is just or reckless leadership. Mm -hmm. um, and as you know, uh, our land-based missiles are sitting there. The Russians know where they are, so it's use them or lose them. And so, right. if we got rid of those, right, then that would really prevent that being a, a, a start of a nuclear war with only a few minutes to make a decision. Right. The people that, of course, as Dr. Mian said. There's a lot of money and power invested in all these weapons. So the people that run the missiles say, oh, no, no, we have to keep them. You can't get rid of them. They're, they need two Russian missiles to hit everyone, and so that's just sort of a sponge to absorb Correct. the weapons so they'll be fewer used somewhere else. But yes. uh, that's, I don't agree with that, that argument. It would when, not only reduce the danger of a nuclear war starting yeah. because the hair trigger would begin to be taken exactly. off, but it would save hundreds of billions, if not trillions of dollars, because that's one of the most expensive legs of our triad. So when President Obama's uh, nuclear advisor, Rose Gottmuller, was at a conference a, several, a few years ago, I walked up to her and said, why doesn't President Obama reduce our nuclear arsenal? Right. As a, as a 
good faith effort to show uh, other countries that we want we're on the mm -hmm. path right. to get rid of them and to right. discourage uh, mm -hmm. North Korea or, or Iran. Mm -hmm. Oh, no, no, we can't do that. We can't do that. Mm. It won't be verifiable. But I understand there's a precedent for that. President George H.W. Bush did yes, that when the Soviet Union was did. falling yes, apart. Yes. He reduced our nuclear arsenal more than any other president. Correct. Without a treaty. The treaty yep. is the maximum amount, not the yep. minimum amount. So. I'm disappointed. I liked Obama, but I was disappointed that he didn't live up to his Nobel Peace Prize and do something like that. Yes, yes, I agree. And back to the uh, no first use, I agree that that's an important uh, way to try to push forward toward a, at least some milestone toward this ultimate goal of global abolition. And it can't be ultimate too far down the path because we may not survive if we keep putting it off. But there's also other good pieces of legislation. So I sort of wanted to return to some of those other milestones because we are part of National Peace Action and so we're the largest, part of the largest peace group in the country and we've been pushing on some of these bills and especially now that the House has changed control. Uh, and one of them is the Restricting First Use of Nuclear Weapons Act. Representative Ted Lieu is the lead sponsor. That's a very good and very exciting bill because it would say that a barring the only condition in which the president alone could authorize the use of nuclear weapons is if we were under nuclear attack. Uh, but any other situation, the Congress would have to declare war and specifically authorize the use of nuclear weapons. So we need more and more barriers that would prevent an, the use of nuclear weapons from beginning. And I, absolutely. I think the more barriers that we can put in place, it, the, the better. And the more quickly we can put those barriers uh, in place, the better. But I do uh, agree also with about um, these larger issues about opportunities that were lost. And one of the things that I think that is important to mention, as you mentioned at the beginning, uh, Bob, was this nuclear modernization that is going to cost mm. over a trillion dollars that the United States is launching. And this was something that the Republicans in the Senate managed to force as a concession from right. President Obama in exchange for the treaty with Russia to reduce the nuclear weapons in 2010 that you the mentioned. New start treaty, the New right. START Treaty. Mm -hmm. And so one of the things that is important is that there is also legislation that's been introduced in Congress uh, saying that we should not have this unlimited, open-ended modernization that the Trump administration is pursuing and that the Republicans have been pushing for for over a decade now without having arms control measures in place right. and that we don't necessarily need all of this modernization to take right. place. And so the resolution that is in the New Jersey Assembly actually includes all of these measures. So it says that the people of New Jersey support the goal and principle of the Treaty for the Prohibition of Nuclear Weapons and calls on the U.S. government to support this treaty. But it also calls for action on the no first use of nuclear weapons, mm -hmm. on not modernizing all the nuclear right. weapons, and to have talks with the other nuclear weapon states on how to end these other nuclear dangers that will be in place until we are at the stage of getting rid of all of these nuclear weapons. So I think that what we can try and think about doing is to how to deal with the whole bundle of nuclear weapons issues that we now confront as a nation and as a global community um, together. Right. And the, I think the other good news in terms of like focusing on the funding for this nuclear modernization program, and by the way, I think the most current estimate is 1.7 trillion, but some experts are saying it'll probably go to at least 2 trillion because you've got costs, everything, the cost of everything keeps rising. And so 
I think that, you know, Congress controls the purse strings. I know the president has pushed back on that in terms of his trying to get his wall, but that only goes so far, and that's being challenged in court, of course, and, and the Congress tried to stop it, but the, that resolution was, was vetoed, you know. But still, the president can't actively get funding for this whole batch of new nuclear weapons and, you know, more usable nuclear weapons unless the Congress gives the funding. And no matter so what we, Obama said when he signed the treaty. Yes, exactly. And so we, so there, we there's it can the be stopped by the power of Congress. We, the people, can stop this. There's the perception of the use of nuclear weapons and there's the real use of nuclear weapons. Can you think of any way that nuclear weapons could actually be used other than as a threat and actually use them? Does, is there any scenario where it would make sense to use them? The people whose job it is to think of ways of using nuclear weapons come up with increasingly fanciful scenarios <laughs> to use them. But, but that's their job. I mean, it, this is like, you know, no disrespect to Reverend Moore, but this is like those theological arguments we read yes. about in the Middle Ages about how many angels can dance on the head yes. of a pen. How yes. many things can you do with a nuclear weapon on a yes. Tuesday if you really put your mind to it? Yes. There's no end of things, but when you come down to it, it will be the first use of nuclear weapons in a military conflict since the end of World War II. Right. And the world will not be the same again, no matter what Won't that be. condition of use is. And even if you want to attack a country, you'll have a radioactive wasteland. Why would you even want that? And, and once the first nuclear weapon is used, there's absolutely no reason to think that there won't be a ladder of escalation and more and more will get used and we'll have a nuclear People get Holocaust. confused, there's communication problems, yes. there's panic. Yes, yes. So the idea, I mean, President Trump uh, during his campaign was getting briefed on nuclear weapons, and apparently he said, well, we have all of them, why, why can't we why use can't them? Why can't we use them, yeah. And that was verified by a number of people that he actually said that. And so this is very dangerous kind of thinking and could get the whole globe into a, a nuclear war that we don't, and I don't think even nuclear war is the right terminology because it's, it's not Holocaust, even war, a it's a Holocaust. Yeah, it's I a don't nuclear use the term Holocaust. Either, Makes you, reminds Global you nuclear destruction, Vietnam, you know, as and, horrible and, uh, as those you, were. you can't really yeah. put a lid on it once it gets started. But I think this raises the question for the people listening to this uh, broadcast as to, uh, so what do we do? And I think one of the first things that we can do is to deal with the fact that we have to tell people about this, mm -hmm. right? That if you are hearing this program, you need to go tell somebody that you heard this. And right. this is what you thought, and this is why they should listen, and they should read and educate themselves and inform themselves, and then find groups of people working on this Correct. and try and help them, like the Coalition for Peace Action. And there are others also, but make common cause, find partners, act. And one thing that certainly we could do as people living in New Jersey is to contact the state assembly and say, look, we want you to pass this resolution that right. on nuclear weapons issues, and to call the members of the House of Representatives and the senators from New Jersey and say, why are you not supporting all of these bills that are in the Congress to reduce the nuclear danger and to get us out of this terrible nuclear dilemma that we found ourselves in, that we elected you to represent us and we want you to be leaders in this struggle against nuclear weapons. So every member of Congress from New Jersey and the two senators from New Jersey should be getting phone calls from the people of New Jersey saying, why are you not signing up and sponsoring these kinds of bills and taking your own initiatives to help end the nuclear danger? And Bob, on the Bob, flip you... side of it, some of them are signing up. So we just did a lobby day with 18 people coming to Washington for a whole day. 
and Representative Bonnie Watson Coleman, who happens to as our local, she signed on to two of the bills that we brought up and thanked us for coming. And so, you know, you I think some some people might be surprised that this is not as hard as it might seem. I'm not saying it's a piece of cake. If we, you got to be well prepared, you got to present your case strongly, and so on. But they're receptive. Some of our elected officials are indeed receptive. Professor Robot? Do you have a list of all those bills on your website? Mm-hmm. Yep. Right at the top under Take Action. Okay. And you can click and voice support uh, through an email for mm -hmm. all of them at once. So okay. all the exact same bills that we lobbied for on March 14th on our lobby day, you can voice your support even though you probably weren't with us and among those 18 people. And, and what exactly is the website? PeaceCoalition.org. PeaceCoalition.org. Yeah. Great. Yeah. Uh, so I think there are some real milestones, and Dr. Meehan, again, we really uh, are appreciative of your leadership in helping get the nuclear ban treaty in place, and it's still got a ways to go, but it's a real beacon of hope, I think, and uh, deserved the Nobel Peace Prize that the International Campaign Against Nuclear Weapons got. Absolutely. We've got a lot of distance still to go. We've got steps along the way, legislation in Congress, education. And I really appreciated what you just said about it's important not to let yourself be isolated in this concern. That's a, that's a recipe for depression, essentially. If you're, there, the way we empower ourselves is to become part of an ongoing effort through groups like Peace Action nationally and Coalition for Peace Action here in this region. So uh, you both have done spectacular work and we appreciate your leadership and the lending of your expertise to this. Are there any things that we haven't covered in our discussion so far that either one of you would like to bring up before we draw a door to close? The impacts of a small nuclear war, mm -hmm. we're, we're doing a, a, a big research project on that now to calculate what the effects would be. One of the things we want to calculate is if you threaten to use your nuclear weapons to deter an attack on another country, you say, I'm going to use my arsenal right. to attack you if you, if you attack me. How many can you actually use without killing yourself mm. from the climate change? Right, right. And it turns out it's a pretty small number. Right. So if you threaten to use your nuclear weapons, it would cause fires, smoke, and you, you couldn't grow your own crops. Right. So that means you're acting like a suicide bomber. Mm -hmm. It's completely irrational. And so we want to you know, quantify mm. that. You need a scenario of what size weapons, what targets, but that will be one of the outputs. And we have a new paper showing that a war between India and Pakistan would actually be much worse than we thought 12 years ago because they wow. each have larger arsenals now. And so uh, we're trying to continue to, to uh, calculate this with the modern climate models. The one we used 12 years ago to, to calculate nuclear winter uh, has been superseded by a, a much better one now, and we just ran the same experiment and got almost exactly the same answer, which was heartening. Uh, basically, if you block out the sun, it gets cold and dark, and the details don't matter so much. Right. So we continue to do research, but we've had trouble getting any money from the federal government to support our yes. research like we get for our other research on climate change. But fortunately, the Open Philanthropy Project, uh, uh, a charity uh, funded by uh, Facebook uh, oh. billionaires, is supporting us. And so th they're supporting a lot of other work like that. this, and, and that's really, really helpful. And I think that's a really important point that in the end, this is... This is a suicide pact. Yeah. If we don't get rid of nuclear weapons and stop threatening to use them, they're going to be the end of humankind. Yeah. And that's, that's not an exaggeration. 
You know, I mean, these really represent the possibility of ending life on Earth, not life, human life, but other forms of life, too. Uh, I if, think we've been really lucky not to have had a second nuclear war is. since, since for, 1945. I, I think we've, I've heard of many experts, former Secretary of Defense Bill Perry comes to mind, but many experts have been saying that it's mostly luck that we haven't had another use of nuclear weapons, and I don't want the future of my children, my grandchildren, to be depending on luck. Uh, we've got to take action together, and so I, I really appreciate what you added to that. We've got to solve this problem so we have the luxury of addressing global warming. Yes, and uh, which is also a serious problem, but it's happening more slowly. Dr. Meehan, I'd like to invite you in a moment to add one uh, final thought, but let me add one of my own, which is you. You mentioned uh, the, the theology, and actually the faith communities were involved quite strongly in the nuclear freeze era. The Roman Catholic bishops issued a very strong uh, letter that endorsed the nuclear weapons freeze, but the one that I liked the best was actually from the United Methodist bishops, and they called their statement in defense of creation. And they basically said, you can't possess nuclear weapons even and have it be a moral thing. I think partly because of what you just said, yeah. Professor Roba. It's, it's really a suicide pact. It's really basically sentencing humanity to ultimately blow ourselves up. And so the idea that you can just hang on to these things forever, the way our government, the U.S. government, and most of the other nuclear nations are acting, at least the other ones haven't escalated to the highest level as we have. But there are examples. Uh, uh, Garcia, the prime minister, the uh, Foreign Minister of Mexico got a Nobel Peace Prize for a treaty that banned nuclear weapons from all of Latin America. There right. are no nuclear weapons in the Southern Hemisphere. Good point. There's only nine countries that have them. What can we learn from all the other countries that have decided not to build them, even though they could? Very good point. Let's look at that example. Yeah. Dr. Meehan, do you have any closing thought to share? I think that it's only by having more of these kinds of conversations mm -hmm. and of making democracy work that we actually have a shot at trying to address these enormous problems that we see in the world, whether it's nuclear weapons or climate change or just basic social and economic injustice. I mean, we live in a world where the richest 1% now control such a vast share mm. of the planet's wealth and income that addressing the core problems of global poverty and producing a decent, dignified life for many people, even in countries as rich as the United States, is a huge challenge. But it's only by having open, informed conversations and a commitment to making democracy work that we have any kind of chance of addressing these kinds of things. So fundamentally, the struggles we face are how to make the democratic system work and how to practice citizenship in all of its respects. Yes, and I, I think that's very well stated. To my mind, the best tool we have is the engine of democracy to try to transform the dangers that are facing us, both from nuclear weapons and from the climate crisis. And so. unlike, unlike some countries around the world, we can sit here and talk about this, broadcast it, mm. and don't, we're not afraid of being put in jail for doing it. So we exactly. still have that freedom. To we do have it. these democratic freedoms. Let's yeah. use them. Yeah. Use them to the max. Yeah. Well, thank you, Dr. Ziamian and Professor Alan Robach, and I also want to thank uh, David Crow, who is our producer. David was the one who got me started on this podcast series, and also Princeton Community TV, where we are taping this podcast. Thanks, and remember to get involved. Go to peacecoalition.org 
We thank you for listening. Thank you, Bob. Thank you.